Amen. Brothers and sisters, please open up in your Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 3. As you were doing so, I would invite you to stand once more for the reading of God's Word this day. We have been slowly making our trek through Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia, and we find ourselves this morning looking specifically at Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. Verses 15 through 18. As we prepare to hear God's word, I would remind you that we are in fact hearing not the words of men, but the words of God. Galatians 3.15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And thus ends this reading of God's holy inspired, and an errant word. Brothers and sisters, please find your seats. The early church father, Tertullian, he once asked, what has Jerusalem to do with Athens? The church with the academy, the Christian with the heretic. Now, to be clear, Tertullian's beef wasn't with geography, What he was lamenting was ideas, ideas that are antithetical to the gospel. And so in that vein, I I can easily imagine the Apostle Paul perhaps building upon Tertullian's words. Paul might say, what has Jerusalem to do with Athens? The church with the academy, the Christian with the heretic. And then Paul might add, what does Abraham have to do with Moses. Now, I, I say it's, it's somewhat easy to imagine Paul saying that, again, because of these ideas that run contrary to the gospel. In this case, the idea of blurring Abraham with Moses, or, or really the idea of conflating the Abrahamic promise on the one hand with the Mosaic law on the other. And to be clear, the emphasis not to be missed is, in fact, this distinction that exists between promise and law, something that we're going to flesh out this morning. Now, as we do so, I want to be the very first to admit that as we start in on this second half of Galatians 3, we find ourselves wading further and further out into the ocean. And the waters quickly become deep, and the undertow is altogether powerful. Or to switch metaphors, we find ourselves embarking on a long and arduous journey, one with steep ups and downs and challenging lefts and rights. 
Galatians 3 as a whole, and, and even the passage that I just read in your hearing, it is a difficult knot to unravel. And therefore, it would serve us well to have a map, lest we get lost on this journey. So what I want to offer here on the front end is something of a map, something to keep our bearings, and of course, we'll have the Apostle Paul as our guide, so that should help. Here's sort of the course we're going to chart this morning. Let me give it to you up front. We'll begin by offering just sort of one sweeping statement. Then we're going to make note of two astute observations. After those two observations, they will yield two crystal clear conclusions. And then, and then those conclusions will result in one glorious reality. So there's one sweeping summary, two observations, two conclusions, one reality. That's the map for our journey, okay? So, so bear with me. We begin our expedition with one sweeping summary. And this will really encapsulate all that we've seen throughout Galatians, not just here in chapter 3. Here's that sweeping statement. There is one way and only one way that sinners like you and I can ever stand right in God's sight. And that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Or as you've heard me laboring now for months, Christ is enough. Remember, this is central to Galatians because these fledging churches in Galatia were being plagued by a false gospel. And one of the ways that you can tell a gospel is a false gospel is because it gets your eyes off of Christ and it puts your eyes on yourself. And that's what's happening here. These churches were on the verge, were they not, of no longer resting in the grace of God that is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And instead, they found themselves being tempted to trust in what they have done in order to please God. And I should just add in passing that this is a perennial temptation for churches, even for ours. So the Apostle Paul has put pen to paper, reminding and, and teaching and encouraging and, and rebuking the church. The only way you can stand right in God's sight is by faith. That's how you and I please God. That's how we are brought into the family of God. That's how we are declared righteous. It's not by our works. It's not by our deeds. It's not by what we have accomplished. It's, it's not because we, at least in the Galatians context, it's not because we have adhered to circumcision or, or the Mosaic ordinances. The point that Paul has made is that it is all by faith. Or if you allow me to turn the screw, you and I are right in God's sight owing to God's promise, not to your performance. This is why, beloved, Abraham has been exhibit A throughout Galatians chapter 3. We know this because in Galatians 3, 6, Paul is quoting Genesis 15, 6, and he says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So all the way back in Genesis 15, Abraham is, to use the language of Genesis 15, righteous. 
Or if you want to use Paul's language from Galatians 3, Abraham is justified. Or if you want to even use my language, Abraham is right in God's sight. And the point that Paul is making is that that this is true. Every last syllable, all of this is the result of looking away from self and looking to the Savior. It is all by faith. That is how Abraham was justified. That is how you and I will be justified. By contrast... If you seek to be justified by your own doing, your own efforts, then you will find yourself, Galatians 3.10, under a curse. So that's the context. That's this one big sweeping summary statement. And in case I am misunderstood this morning, I want to assure you that Paul will say nothing different today. Every sentence, every stroke of the pen is to make this point abundantly clear. Christ is enough. Now, with that big sweeping summary in place, Paul will proceed to make two astute observations, both of them from the Old Testament. The first observation, and and here you will see that Paul is a careful student of Scripture. The first observation is this. The promise to Abraham preceded the Mosaic Law. Let me say that again. The promise that God made to Abraham, it preceded the Mosaic Law. Or to go out from another direction, Moses followed Abraham. And if if you're a little confused at this, you can look in your table of contents, and what you will quickly discover is that Genesis, in fact, comes before Exodus. And, and you and I might sort of think, well, that's sort of duh, but it actually has implications, implications that are life-giving and soul-stabilizing. The fact that the law <clears throat> followed the promise is stated in verse 17 plainly. This is what I mean, Paul says. The law came 430 years afterward. And in the context, the nail that Paul is hammering is this. Mount Sinai, the Mosaic Law, it came more than four centuries after Abraham and the promises that God had made to him. And so as Paul reads the Bible, as he looks at Genesis and Exodus in particular, Here's the first observation he makes. God entered into covenant with Abraham, and God made promises to Abraham long before Moses was ever seen floating down the river in this basket made of bulrushes. Which means, and and here we will begin to anticipate the flower of Paul's argument blossoming, The gospel of God and the tsunami of blessings that it brings in its wake, it comes to us not by our performance, law, but by promise, by what God has said. Paul's not done yet, though, applying his keen eye to sacred Scripture. Not only does he recognize that the the promises to Abraham precede Moses, but the second observation is this, and it's fleshed out in verse 16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham, we read, and to his offspring. 
It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring. Now, beloved, let me just pause very quickly and and say something. I want you to notice that Paul is making an argument here to a fledging church suffering from a false gospel. And Paul's argument, at least in part, hinges upon whether a noun in the Old Testament is a singular noun or a plural noun. Think about that for a moment. Do you think the Apostle Paul took the Bible seriously? Do you think that he affirmed what you and I in our world today, do you you think he affirmed what we would refer to as Scripture's inspiration and inerrancy and infallibility? How could he not? He's quibbling over whether a noun is a singular or plural noun. It's actually pretty remarkable when you think about it. But what is the significance of this observation? Well, we can begin by at least saying this. The promises of Abraham in Genesis, they were made to Abraham's offspring singular. That's the weight of verse 16. That's what is being highlighted. Now, it should be pointed out that Paul was well aware that this word, though singular, offspring... It is true that it could be used in what's referred to as a collective sense. And and we do the same thing today. We will use words that are singular words, but but we, we mean by it more than one. So, for example, if you were to sow seed in your field, you wouldn't say, I went and sowed seeds today. You'd say, I sowed seed. And though seed there is singular, we would all understand not that you went and took a singular seed and laid it in the ground, but that by sowing seed, you sowed seeds, right? Paul understood that that's how language works. He got that. No one is disputing that. But nevertheless, as Paul digs into the Old Testament, as he does so with magnifying glass in hand, he goes out of his way to point out that, well, in reality, God did, in fact, make these promises to Abraham's offspring, singular. So, beloved, before we go any further, let's make sure we're all keeping up. I don't want to lose any of us on this journey. Paul has applied his keen eye to the Old Testament, and two truths immediately jump out at him. First, again, the promises to Abraham precede the Mosaic Law. And then second, these promises were made to Abraham's offspring, singular. And from those two observations, two conclusions follow. The first conclusion is this. The law cannot annul the promise. The law, I repeat, cannot annul the promise. Think back to verse 15. Think back to verse 15 where Paul says, man-made covenants and how they are binding, right? And Paul adds at the end of verse 15 that no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. 
And the point that Paul is making here is that it's fixed. It's certain. It's guaranteed. It's going to happen. Nothing is going to stop it. That's the flavor. You might think of a will. If you have some great uncle who was loaded, and upon his death, it is revealed that he willed to you a, a large sum of money and a car collection and some, uh, I don't know, beautiful property up in the mountains. Once he dies, it is yours. No matter the outcry of his children, he listed you, apparently his favorite niece or nephew, as the beneficiary. And regardless of the hue and cry of the rest of the family, that will will not be annulled. Likewise, down in verse 17, Paul says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, that is after the promise of God given to Abraham, the law does not annul, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. So catch this. Just as you recently inherited a cabin in the mountains and that cannot be annulled by some later document, neither church can the promises of God made to Abraham be made void by Moses. That's the point. That's what can't be missed. For all the difficulty of this passage, and I have already acknowledged that it is thorny, that is what cannot be missed. Moses can't wreck Abraham. The law can't undo the promise. Exodus doesn't circumvent Genesis. I'm ready to go out from a different direction. You don't need Moses' law to get Abraham's promise. Now, if you're at this point and you're sort of scratching your head and you're wondering, well, why on earth is Paul even going down this rabbit hole in the beginning? Remember, the false teachers plaguing these churches in Galatia were saying, faith is not enough. They have been told that, that Christ wasn't enough. His perfect righteousness was, it turns out, inadequate. God's incarnate blood couldn't actually remove the stain of sin. The wrath of God was not fully and finally satisfied at the cross of Christ. When Christ announced from the cross, it is finished, He apparently didn't really mean it. When Christ's corpse was stuffed in the tomb, your sins were not buried with Him. And when Christ was resurrected three days later, He was victorious over sin and death and hell. That is all true, but not necessarily victorious over your sin, over your death, and over your hell. And though Christ intercedes for His people as a faithful high priest, His intercession can and in fact does fail. Why utter such blasphemy, you ask? 
Well, because that was the view that was being articulated by the wolves in sheep's clothing preying upon those churches in Galatia. Their pseudo-gospel, you remember what, what we've been calling over the last couple of weeks the gospel, this mixing of law and gospel together, it went something like this. You can stand right in God's sight, but Christ is not enough. You will need your obedience. You will also need a pile of good works. In fact, you're going to need circumcision, and you're going to need feast days, and you're going to need kosher laws. You're going to need all of this stuff. So that really what you have to have, please don't miss this, is not just Christ, they would say, but you also need Moses. It's such a dangerous and damning view. The Apostle Paul, again, the ever-careful student of Scripture, he quickly points out, God made his promises to Abraham more than four centuries before the Mosaic Covenant even came into existence. So Paul asks, how then can the law nullify the promises that were given to Abraham? And the answer is, they can't. Those promises are ironclad. They are rooted in the grace of God. Or to cut to the chase and use a language there at the end of verse 18, the law cannot make the promise void. So church, I told you that this journey was long, but I also trust you see it's good. Because with every step that you and I take, as difficult as it is as we make our way through this passage, we are inching ever closer to the wonderful glories of the gospel. I trust that you you can begin to see with greater and greater clarity that our standing before God is based upon promise, not performance. That brings us then to the second conclusion. Remember, the second observation was that the promises made to Abraham were made to Abraham's offspring, singular, And the question naturally arises, well, then who is that? Who is Abraham's offspring? And possible answers abound, do they not? We know the answer is not Ishmael, but Isaac's a contender. Or Jacob. You might consider Joseph. He plays a a massive role in like the, the latter half of the whole book of Genesis. Or or you might sort of zoom out and look a little bit forward. You might look down through redemptive history and and you come to someone like David. Maybe David is this promised offering. After all, David was a great king. And in something of a penultimate way, all of those answers are true, sort of. Yes, they are true in that those were descendants of Abraham. That's all true. True. But none of them were the offspring which Paul is pointing to. According to the New Testament's interpretation of the Old Testament, there is only one singular offspring of Abraham, and that one singular offspring is Jesus Christ himself. 
the middle of verse 16, flatly says this. It, speaking of the, the Genesis narrative, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So, so we need to make no mistake about this. Christ is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises. That's the point. All the promises made to Abraham, they become a reality, not in Abraham, and not in David, and not in the nation-state of Israel, whether ancient or modern. The promises of God find their fulfillment. They reach their crescendo. They become a reality in the Lord Jesus Christ. To which I trust that you give a hearty amen. But what's the point? What's the reason that Paul is laboring this here? In other words, what does verse 16 have to do with this infection that is plaguing the Galatian churches? Well, remember the Judaizers, those who were peddling their false gospel, we could say it this way, they had something of a love affair with Moses. But Paul is quick to point out, he's quick to remind the churches, God's covenantal promises given to Abraham find their fulfillment in Christ, not Moses. You see this? Another way to say it would be this. The Old Testament doesn't find its goal, its telos, its aim in the law. Instead, the goal, the aim, the telos of all the Old Testament and all the Old Covenant is actually Jesus Christ. Which means, beloved, the Mosaic Covenant is not the end all. Christ is. And so to miss Christ, to pass over him, to, to stiff-arm Christ and to embrace Moses as if Moses is the fulfillment of God's redemptive plans. Well, church, that would be like upgrading your car with a horse and buggy. By definition, it's inferior. That is to devolve, not evolve. To think that everything is about Moses and the Mosaic Law, to, to sidestep Christ and to embrace Moses, that is not just to step in the wrong direction, that is to take a step backwards. The promises of God point to Jesus Christ. And as we'll see in a couple weeks, those to whom are joined to Jesus Christ. Now, at this point, church, we've nearly reached the end of our journey. I will confess, perhaps our feet are sore, our back hurts. Bear with me. We're, we're one corner away from making the turn and seeing the peak of Mount Everest. I, I told you this was long. I told you this was arduous. Remember, the inspired apostle has made two observations about Abraham. And those two observations have led him to two conclusions— now it's all going to terminate on one glorious reality. And that glorious reality is found in verse 18. For there in verse 18, Paul declares, 
For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Do do you see how this idea of law and promise are juxtaposed? Do, Do you see how this idea of your performance and God's promise are set over and against each other? Do you see how this can give assurance to your soul? How it can give grace to your heart? How it can give comfort to your being? God gave it to Abraham, verse 18, by a promise. This ought to be rebar for our fickle and finite and fleeting faith. All the gifts of God, the gospel itself, and and by that, just to be clear, Paul means our being brought into the family of God, our future inheritance, the indwelling spirit of God, the imputed righteousness of Christ that is ours, our very right standing before God, not just in some future world, but right now in this very moment. All these good gospel gifts They come to you and I right now in the exact same way that they came to Abraham. How is that? By faith. By faith. Which is really just another way of saying that none of this is because of you. The gifts of God, your justification, your righteousness, your standing before God, your future resurrection, heaven if you like. It's not owing to you or I's so-called faithfulness. It's not accomplished by our works or by our doing. It's not contingent upon how well you or I perform in this life. So many Christians think that the Christian life is is sort of like a test. And you get graded. And some, like, really, really good Christians, they go on the honor roll, and we see their bumper stickers on the backs of cars. But most of us never get those accolades. Brothers and sisters, your right standing before God isn't earned by you conquering that one pesky sin. You aren't granted heaven because you have such a great IQ, because you're spiritually mature, or because you can win at Bible trivia. The gavel in heaven doesn't drop, and God doesn't declare you righteous based on your spiritual accomplishments or your moral resume. None of it, none of the gospel is owing to your personal piety, your religious discipline, your stellar performance, or your rigorous devotion. The point is, it's not by your doing. It all rests upon Christ and His doing for you. That's what makes the gospel not just news, 
but good news. It's good news not that God put you on the treadmill and said, sweat it out. That would be news. It wouldn't be good news. It's good news because God has in Christ acted on behalf of and for His people. That's the promise. The promise is that Christ has done for you what you could never do for yourself. That's the difference between promise and performance. Performance is what you do. It's your resume. Promise is what God has done for you. Or if you want to try to really lean into our passage, look at it from the context specifically of Galatians 3. The promise was made to Abraham long before the law. Which means you can't make the fulfillment of the promise contingent upon keeping the law. And if that wasn't enough, all the promises anyway we've learned, they find their fulfillment not in Moses, not in circumcision, not in the law, not in your doing, not in your resume, not in your efforts. All the promises of God find their fulfillment in Abraham's offspring, who is Christ. This is why, as Christians, we glory in our Redeemer. Because He really is our Redeemer. He really is worth glorying in. Because He really is enough. The Judaizers were altogether fond of Moses. They had his portrait up in their living room, no doubt. But the Bible isn't about Moses. The Bible is about Christ. And our right standing before God, it is only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And you know what the most important word in all of that is? It's the word alone. I say that because Paul forces the Galatians and us once again to see that what lies in front of you and I is nothing less than a fork in the road. The blessings of the gospel, or to use the language of verse 18, this idea of inheritance, it will come only one way. It will come either through law or it will come either through promise. Which means that the fork in the road has two paths. The path of law or promise. Works or faith. Perform or grace. Do or done. Righteousness will either be earned by you, and remember, Galatians 3.10 has already told us, if you go that route, if you rely on works of the law, then you find yourself under a curse. That, that's one path. Or, righteousness will be earned by another, by Christ in your stead. So for the sake of our souls, let me be super clear and intentionally redundant. Righteousness comes to us through Christ alone. Our being accepted into the people of God is on account of Christ alone. Our future resurrection is in Christ alone. 
The reverse of the curse for our world is according to Christ alone. And the blessings to the nations likewise come from Christ alone. It's all by promise, not by performance. Perhaps no one has captured this better, at least succinctly, than that great, what, 17th, 18th century Puritan John Bunyan. He captured this well in this, this little rhyme. And in so doing, he doesn't use the language of performance and, and promise, but, but those are the categories that are in his mind. Let me just let Bunyan have the last word. Bunyan writes, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would see fit to act as if a, he were a surgeon today and to do heart work as your word has been proclaimed. We pray that you would be working in us so that we would be resting in Christ. And we are the first to confess to you that we are ever prone, ever tempted to look away from Christ and to look to us, to look to ourselves, to look to our successes, to, to look to all manner of things that we have done or haven't done as if that makes us right in your sight. We, we pray that, that you would cause this burden and this weight to fall off of our shoulders and that you would cause us to rest joyfully satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ, he who gave of himself that we would have life. We pray these things in his name. Amen.